0: Let's go!
1: It is I, the Poptimist. I wanted to say thank you for listening. I really appreciate the fact that people are listening to the podcast. It means a lot to me. I've been doing this for the past couple years on and off, just through uh, the the phases of life. And uh, I'm very grateful that People are deciding to listen now, Um, the numbers are starting to go up, Uh, a lot of people are starting to reach out about the show and I just want to say thank you. I really appreciate it, it means the world to me and uh, this podcast has been very therapeutic and it's really pushed me to grow as a human being, Uh, all the behind the scenes stuff. Um, If you want to reach out to me, feel free to reach out to me at the underscore Poptimist for Instagram, and also the Poptimist podcast at gmail.com. And since I'm plugging that, I might as well tell you, I am also available as a bass player and a producer. No pressure. I know you probably want to be friends with me first before we uh, start working together. We don't need to rush things. We're just going to take it easy, see where it goes, that's all. This week's guest is Larry Van Loon, the, uh, the, uh, how do I describe Larry? There's really no way to describe Larry, so I'm going to let you listen, but I will say the crying fits have stopped, and he has repaired the eyes on his teddy bear, and the stuffing is intact. On that note, Larry will be playing with the Andy T Band doing a little Florida tour. So, if anyone uh, is listening down in that old swampy swampness, wrap your ears around these dates. November 1st, Day of the Dead, he is going to be playing at the Bradfordville Blues Club in Tallahassee, Florida. November 2nd is Little Bar in Goodland. Florida. November 3rd, Bank and Blues Club in Daytona Beach. November 7th, Bradenton's Women Club in Bradenton. Uh, Sorry, I can't read my own writing. I was a D student all through school. November 8th, Double Roads Tavern in Jupiter, Florida. At one point in my life, I did live in Jupiter, Florida. November 9th, Titanic Brewing Company in Coral Gables, Florida. That's not too far from my sister. I'm going to make her go so my niece can can see them play. November 10th is at Dunedin Wines, the Blues in Dunedin. So uh, thank you to Larry for coming on. Go see him live. He's a fantastic musician. Recently I've had the pleasure of working with him. Should you need his services, feel free to reach out to him on Facebook, Larry Van Loon. Last but not least, thank you to Bobby Gale over at Warner Reprise for uh, chatting with me and, uh, and hooking me up with this, uh, this Gerard Way song. Uh, Gerard Way, of course, was the front man of MCR, which was one of my favorite bands when I was first getting into music. Got to see them play live a couple different times. My favorite time, of course, was on the opening night of the Black Parade World Tour in the US. They were playing in New Hampshire and Rise Against opened for them. And it was a fantastic show. Uh, but that being said, check out this song Baby, You're a Haunted House. Uh, Mikey, Gerard's brother and bass player for My Chemical Romance, is playing bass on this track. It's real fun. Um, it's nice to hear uh, to hear him doing something like this. It just so- it sounds kind of carefree. No pressure, no stress. He's just making the music he wants to make, and I'm happy to hear it.
2: Baby, you're all in love.
1: Welcome to the Poptimist. Today we have none other than Larry Van Loon. Larry, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So, when did your professional career first start?
0: Back uh, back in the 1800s, before the uh, <laughs> before the this is before electricity. Man, I, I got to tell you, <laughs> we had to hand crank our B3s. No, I, I I first got started just growing up. My my dad played the piano, not professionally, but he played the piano. And he played guitar, and he was an artist. And he was discouraged from you know, pursuing any of those activities by his parents. Uh but I just grew up thinking everybody did that, you know. I mean we would get together, he'd come home from work and there would be many times we would just gather around the piano and sing songs that he would play.
1: What so, kind of songs were they? Do you they remember They were like any it, it was mostly yeah, it was
0: mostly folk music. He had this big book I remember it was called the, the Fireside Book of Folk Songs. And and he was Dutch, you know. I, I, my parents are Dutch. We we emigrated to the United States on the last voyage of the Andrea Doria. I might add, as a side
1: side. What is sidebar. that? I don't know what, what that is offhand. What, what does the, that mean historically? The,
0: <laughs> well, while we're on the subject. Where were you when Kennedy got shot? <laughs> oh, I
1: was not born yet. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. Wait, never mind.
0: The uh, Andrea Doria was the third worst ocean going disaster. Uh, maritime disaster. It was two passengers after what, well, I believe the first one is it's like the Lusitania and the Titanic.
1: Uh-huh.
0: I can't remember which one of those is first. And the Andrew Doria collided around 1957 collided mm-hmm. with a, uh, a Norwegian ship called the Stockholm or Swedish ship. It was two passenger ships. They, they collided off uh, off of uh, the Nantucket you know, coast. And the Andrew Doria wound up sinking. Did
1: a bunch of people die or? Yeah, yeah. I never. This is the first time I'm. I'm ever seriously. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's an
0: interesting story, and they still haven't figured out whose fault it was. You oh, know, really? Think, yeah, that was one of those. Heraldo uh, Rivera went down to uh, he he got people to go down to try to get the it's, safe to, to try up from, to try
1: and crack the yeah. the mystery.
0: And so then they opened up the safe, but they also knew all the people that all the people that had uh, had stuff in the safe. They knew what was in the safe already because it was it was uh, on an invoice so all the lawyers were waiting you know to claim whatever it was so they couldn't show anything so they open up the safe and it's kind of like okay here's like a waterlogged dollar bill thanks we're going to go break
1: for commercial now so how did we get on this i don't know i'll go on another <laughs> tangent though um i went to the grand old opry to see uh to see the radio show oh how live. cool yeah And uh, that night, when I went, Kiefer Sutherland was playing. Oh, nice, man. And he was actually really good. And Geraldo was there. And they pulled him from the (laughs) audience. He was probably just on vacation or something like that with his family. And, of course, he's very recognizable with the mustache. And they brought him up. And he was just red-faced and sweaty. And it did not seem like he wanted to be on stage and then he started talking about Trump, and then he started talking about America and how much he loved America, and he was just, like, trying to get people to cheer, and only, like, half the audience clapped, and the other half was just silent. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yikes. so that's that's my tangent, is, uh, we, we ended up at Geraldo.
0: Well, yeah, Geraldo, Geraldo, let's put it this way, Geraldo's attempt to salvage the safe of the Andrea Doria was about as effective as his, uh, uh, as the Al Capone
1: vaults,
0: you know, <laughs> fiasco. Yeah.
1: So, getting back to playing. Okay. When did when did you first start playing? <laughs> so your dad was kind of always playing in the house growing up. Well, uh, you know, this is... Uh, uh,
0: I guess, I, you know, during the great folk scare of the late 60s, when that stuff almost caught on, <laughs> that's what started me. I, I had taken piano lessons. My, my folks gave me piano lessons, but... You know, honestly, I mean, I love banging around with it, you know, and and it was a good fit, but it wasn't really my music, you know, I hadn't really developed a personal relationship with it until mm-hmm. I heard some of, some of the folk music of the time, and uh, I listened to people that were singing songs that they thought they could change the world with, and I thought that I could do that, too, maybe eventually, you know, at the time, the... Uh, the Vietnam War and the uh, the whole civil rights thing were on the front burner. Sure. And so I sang protest songs and I wound up, you know, singing in marches and moratoriums and demonstrations and stuff. Really? And I really, I thought, I thought I'd be able to change stuff with my songs, you know. Silly me.
1: <laughs> I think, it, I think music can change the world. Well, you know...
0: I went through a period where I just kind of went, okay, I can't change anything. All I can do is lament, you know. And that, as a result of that, that that I became firmly entrenched in the blues, as you. Oh yeah, yeah. But now I've reached uh, the stage of my life that, uh, you know, old farthood, I believe is it's called. And now I, I'm kind of back to where I was at, at first. You know, I may not be able to change the entire world, but I might be able to. Uh, in my own little corner that I've got, I might be able to act as a cheerleader, to uh, if nothing else, just to encourage other people that are that are in range, just to c- encourage them as they proceed to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Totally. So, yeah. So I, that's that's where I'm at now. I think that's the that, that that's the best I can do. If somebody's trying to do the right thing, the best I can do is say you're not the only
1: one. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I. I from moving to Nashville, you know, I, w- this was something we talked a little bit about on the, on the phone the other day. I, uh, I really didn't really start applying myself or try to start actually having like a career or taking it seriously. The whole time I thought I was for the first three years I was here. I thought I was doing everything right that I was supposed to be doing. And to an extent, I was doing what was, what, with the tools that I had, like the emotional and mental tools I had at the time, I was committing to what I, I needed to. But over time, I, I've just really started to see, you know, after seeing all these people here in Nashville, that I really think music can change the world, and that it really can change, at least for a moment, it can change the world. Maybe for that three minutes and twenty seconds.
0: You know, I, I'm with you. I, I I backed away from that because I was disappointed, man. Sure. It looked like the bad guys won. Yeah. You know all the stuff that's. That we went through in the '60s, I thought we fought those battles, and I thought we had come out with like a set of values that we were all on board with. Yeah. And I turned out to be wrong about that. But what I'm not wrong, what I wasn't wrong about yeah. was is is the power of music, and sometimes the people that are really doing the things that keep this country, and not this country that sounds so political, keep our society, what it, keep it alive and breathing is uh the people that are out there really doing that you don't necessarily know about them, you know it's my feeling that we are without i mean I hate to sound poetic, but I think we're all basically just walking each other home. Mm-hmm. Music is such a powerful tool in in- regards to that attempt you know if you if your interest is is in working with people you know and Collectively trying to enhance, you know, our lot here while we while we're down here doing whatever it is we're supposed to be doing. Music opens those doors and it opens those windows, and you can tell people, yeah, you're you're, you're doing the right thing more powerfully than than uh, than you know than other ways. <laughs>
1: <laughs> have you ever uh, had a moment where you questioned if music was supposed to be what you're meant to do in life, or have you ever wanted to quit or walk away from it or something like that, or have you quit or walked away from it ever? No, and no. It was all. It's always you just and knew. no. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No. I, I, yeah. There's
0: only one kind of bait. Oh, a very wise man once told me, "There's only one kind of bait in the bucket." I, this is this is what I do I have no other marketable skills although honestly I started out uh, thinking art was the way I was gonna go mm-hmm. I was a, actually an art major at in uh, Connecticut at the Hartford art school of the University of Hartford
1: so were you a painter or what did you specialize fine in? fine arts okay well drawing we... sketching okay painting mostly drawing and
0: pen and ink were a sort of a specialty uh, screen printing was was cool
1: uh, I didn't really Dabble too much in oil painting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So was that something else that you got from your father, or did that come from somewhere else?
0: I don't know where that came from. Really, it's, it's, I always did. It's through school. I was always the, I was the guy that uh, you came to if you needed posters. I was the art editor of all the magazines. Really? So okay. But uh, you know, I I kind of got to. I, it was my first year in college, and I was at the art school, and right next door. There was a great music school. It was the Hart College of Music. Uh-huh. And I wound up cutting my classes uh, just so I could attend classes at the music school. So I wound up, <laughs> this is great, man. I wound up uh, joining this choir and we wound up doing these all these performances with like, we were conducted by Aaron Copeland and uh, Isaac Stern and Leonard Rose were the orchestra and we were doing grand opera with uh, soloists with the, from the Metropolitan and the New York City Opera. And for a folk singer, this is a real departure, too. Uh-huh. I mean, it was, I was just a, kind of like a hippie kid wearing sandals. And that first day of re- rehearsal, I remember standing next to the tenors, you know, and they were all going, la-la. And so I just faked it. You know, I just kind of, I went, la-la, with them. Uh-huh. And next thing you know, I was like in operas with, uh, with uh, soloists from the Met.
1: Damn. Okay. So, did you did you ever do any opera or anything like that? What did they have you study? Oh uh, yeah,
0: we did. The first opera I was in was one by Carabini, and it's called Medea, and uh, she is the story of Medea. is It's it's like a huge tragedy. She's burning down the temples and slaughtering the children. Where the villagers are praying and we're weeping, and we literally were in tears on stage. We did the the production was full tilt, and the director was world-renowned, and it was top-end, full orchestra, pipe organ, you know, the the, the whole thing. Uh-huh. And also, I should throw in that the entry-level jobs for music were a lot more interesting than the entry-levels for, for art. For art, my um, options were designing the shape of a window on a box of pasta in an upstairs fluorescent-lit studio. But the entry levels for music were going down to my favorite watering hole, bang on a guitar and whining about how bad my day went, to my all my little pals that were getting drunk. So, hello. I went, to and then you became a musician. Thither, thither <laughs> I went.
1: So what, what? Like time frame is this? Where like. What year is this that you're that well, you graduated in from
0: I graduated from high school in 1969. I was already kind of I was playing the guitar and singing and 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 uh, performing with with some friends. Uh-huh. You know, we had a little little folk band. And uh by the time I got to college, I you know, I went to uh, I did the art school thing and I was still playing in coffee houses in the area, you know, and on campus too. And then augmenting this with this New education in opera,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know. It's like I don't, you know, I don't even know why I went that way. I'd never heard an opera. I didn't know anything about opera. You just liked it. I just, it was an opportunity to sing, and be on stage, and it was, yeah, it was great, you know.
1: So, how long did you live in Hartford for? It was a, it was just a
0: couple of years. Uh, I, I kind of realized that whichever direction I went in. Nobody would ever ask me for a diploma, and and the expense of college didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and I I was the same way. You know, I wound up uh, honestly. You know, because it was the time at it was possible for me me to do some things that sound a little bit weird now, but I mean, I just wound up hitchhiking. I, I I wound up I wound up in Yellowstone Park. And then from there, I, I hitchhiked around, and I wound up in Colorado.
1: Um, I love Colorado. I lived there for a year.
0: Oh, man. So, so yeah, I, I wound up living on the outskirts of a ghost town called Central City. And I, I built this shack out of old mining timber. It was a trapezoidal-shaped shack, shack with a cantilever bay window and a triangular door. And I had to climb 1,000 feet to get up to my shack, 1,000 feet outside of Central City. And I built dulcimers and oiled them with patchouli oil. <laughs> I still can't... I can hardly believe that I did that now, but it was a great way to get started as a young adult to, and get started on reinventing myself.
1: Sure. That's another thing that we've kind of been talking about, this idea of reinvention. Uh-huh. And I think it's important for a lot of musicians. The one thing that you, you see, I, I at least I have in, in the music career, is there people who just completely reinvent themselves, or there is someone who finds what they do and then they stick with it and then that's their thing? And I personally am a believer more so in reinvention because I feel like I, every couple of years, like life changes, shit changes. Well, it does,
0: and it's and 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 it's usually not you know a matter of choice, you know. So it's good to be nimble in that particular way and and here's another thing that i've noticed now now that i'm an old fart i've passed this certain rite of passage and it happens around uh age 50 51 52 53 you know this is this is this is a period of time where you're forced i i mean i've kind of studied this i haven't met anybody that isn't subject to this uh it's the third part of your life that's beginning and you're forced to either reinvent yourself um or or you don't survive sometimes you know for for women it's a little bit easier to identify because they can call it like empty nest syndrome or something like totally, that yeah. for for guys it's a little bit different because you kind of kind of kind of wonder why you get to this point where you think you don't have to learn any lessons the hard way anymore and the truth is, it's a whole new set, you okay, know, out yeah. there. And and you either you, you have to either reinvent yourself, or you know, rededicate yourself to to what it is that you've mm-hmm. been doing. For creative people, it's a little easier because they're already on a track that's that's real organic, mm-hmm. usually. You know, unless a. Unless their approach at one time was totally business and then they're going more right brain.
1: Yeah. Well, that that was another thing that we've kind of chatted about. You know, I I have this, I'm at this point in my life where I'm almost going back to more of the way I was when I was a teenager. Because now I don't really have any responsibilities. I don't have a job. I got to pay my rent, but that's pretty much it. You know, pay my car. Make sure I have car insurance and gas, and I can eat every now and then. Freedom, yeah. I have I have complete freedom now, and it was strange at first because I wasn't busy at first, and then all of a sudden, once I made the decision to commit, the floodgates just opened.
0: Like, you know, it's it's, it's it's there's different paths for different people, yeah. and there's different ways to live and different ways to go. Mm-hmm. You know, but I do find that sometimes folks are a little too. Um, too uh, eager you know too enthusiastic to give their freedom away you know I was for sure I kind of went the other direction I was so neurotic <laughs> about preserving it that now I've you know there's, there's some of life experiences I'm sure that I've missed out on just you know just because I wanted to you know kind of like stay on this on this solo road cool. if you know for, for higher stakes you, you
1: know you see where the other paths split off yeah. in the paths that you could have had yeah,
0: I mean, I I didn't do the family thing, you yeah. know, and that's 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 the bedrock of society, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, but I had the freedom, and and I I never want to do anything that I perceived, you know, as you know endangering that, you know. And it's that I, I turned out that turned out to be kind of neurotic in certain ways. For sure, I, I wouldn't I would recommend that
1: you know to anybody, but uh, but that's that's no way it went. went. Mm-hmm. For me, it was. As soon as I turned 18, I started working. I didn't go to college. Um, I started working retail jobs, and I was kind of living the life of the musician. I was working at places just like grocery stores and office supply stores and that kind of a thing. And eventually, I landed at this this one job. That sounds more legit than what I was doing. Yeah, I landed at this this one job that was uh, I was going to be an IT intern because I thought, okay, I need to have something that I feed myself with. So I thought I was going to be a tech guy. And I was an intern for about six months. I was burning the candle at both ends, working at Staples by day, and then um, working at this other place. My schedule was kind of flip flop. I was working seven days a week, and I was learning a lot. And eventually, they were like, "Hey, why don't you do sales stuff?" And that was really the beginning of like my professional white collar career. And um, I did that various office jobs for until I was like until this year, twenty twenty six and it um I just got to the point to where more and more like every time i i would I would be forced into sitting down with whoever my boss was, and they, they would always just say, "You know you're really enthusiastic and you have such a great positive mentality about life, but it just seems like you don't really care about the work like you it seems like you want to be doing something else and I was like I, I- always denied it in the moment, I was like oh no i'm I'm completely one hundred percent dedicated but they were always right. They were always right. I always I would be sitting in my office working and thinking, I should be practicing right now. I should be going out and like digging a ditch right now or something for some other means of money to where I'm not in this office. And they taught me a lot of great professional business organized skills. Um, but other than that, they really other than that one job B E K, that's that's like the only job that I, I don't regret so to speak not what? that i really regret anything
0: bbk uh it's B-E-K. b-e-k b-e-k what's that what's
1: that um it was that was the uh, the sales job that i had it was a tech company i actually i have this pen right here it stands for the the owner his daughters are uh bonnie aaron and um kayla okay and you'll see here uh th- th- those are maritime flags he was an admiral in the navy so he taught me so much stuff about being like disciplined and organized and I feel like young men need to be chewed out every now and then if they just are kind of rudderless.
0: Discipline and organized is really a good thing and I yeah. I, I got to tell you. It's like I don't know, I not not to undermine the thing, things that I learned from my parents. Sure. But, but uh you know, I was just such a free spirit in uh-huh. my in my early years that disciplined and organized was was like
1: it doesn't come natural for people uh, yeah, like us. i had,
0: i had to uh, i had to learn it like years later just just as a means of survival I'm oh, just yeah. going i'm not accomplishing you know what i need i'm not getting anything done yes you
1: know? exactly and what i feel really grateful for is in addition to that like when i was first starting as a salesman there was this guy that they brought in he was a business consultant to kind of get the sales wing of the business off you know started off because he had never like the owner didn't feel like he really had enough knowledge on the sales front to to teach me he was very good with the the whole discipline discipline organization he told the tech guy mentality but he he brought in this guy jim mccarthy who jim mccarthy as equally as i am uh indebted to like any of the musicians that taught me growing up i am indebted to to jim and then the guy who was the navy admiral gill because every single thing that I'm doing right now, like, I keep a calendar, I keep everything really organized, I have a couple of whiteboards up in my bedroom with everything written out of what I need to take care of that week, and like whatever finances I have coming up or anything like that, I learned everything from then. Um, and that's giving me... That's that's valuable stuff, you know, I, I, I lament totally. the fact that I didn't
0: have... I, I, I let me clarify. Yeah, I celebrate the mentors that I've had sure. in my life. I had a high school art teacher that just, you know, really kind of just got the whole ball rolling for mm-hmm. me. But I didn't really have anybody. My parents were like old school European. It was bad uh, form to talk about finances. Yeah, you know, we never we never talked about money. Yeah. You know, it was just kind of like, it's like, well, you don't really talk about that to anybody, not much less the kids. Uh-huh. You know, so I had to learn that on my own. But before I learned it on my own, I still had, to, I had to figure out whether or not it was, it was even important or worth learning, you mm-hmm. know, which means, <laughs> yeah, which means, yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> totally. Like that guy, Jim, what he would, every Friday we would have these sales meetings. And I was expected to tell them what I had in the works, what appointments I had, what I was closing that week, who were my new prospects that I was going to call or that I was going to visit, how my phone calls went for the week, how my cold calls went for the week, and all that. And one, one of uh, Jim would give these, these theater of the mind presentations. And he, one day he, he talked about money. He was like, he, he knew that I was at this point, uncomfortable talking about it. Now, now I don't give a shit. Like I I will talk to anybody like budget's the first thing I always want to talk about. That's what they always trained us in sales is talk about the budget first, find out if it's even worth the person working with us. But they would just grill me on all that stuff. And they just drilled it into my brain to the point where it was like, that's all you would think about.
0: Man, that's that's you know if if that was some something that you that you were mentored in, oh yeah, that's that's a huge advantage, man. Because I'm so grateful. I, I had to invent, reinvent the wheel on all of this. Yeah, stuff. you know, I got to tell you, I mean, I love the folks, man. That you know, to, I mean, I you know, and I also lo- love the educational system that I came from. You know, mm-hmm. grade school and high school were were good, but none of it really prepared me for. For what you deal with in the real world, I had to kind of go. Oh, there's that's what's happening. Okay, well then I need to, I need to know this and that and that. You know. Yeah. I mean, I just now figured out. I just now figured. Out, you know, I've been trying to work, use a little calendar on your phone. Uh huh. You know, to organize your life with. It's. So it's. I finally figured out that it is so user unfriendly. You can't it, data entry. You know, on a tiny little. You have phone. to click on this, change you know, the time for a complicated schedule where you're constantly interfacing with people. Yeah, it took me, you know, till like, oh, like about you know a couple of months ago to figure what you need is a big paper calendar. Oh yeah, you know
1: where you can see everything. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I had to share my calendar with them. They had to they had to be able to see it at all times, and they had to know what I was doing, and. um man i I would not trade that experience really for anything in the world because when I moved to Nashville, I was still working office jobs and everything like that and it's it took me a while it took me three years to figure out how to assimilate into being a musician again because I didn't know because i I have this very I'm definitely guilty of thinking, like, very black and white and being very rigid sometimes. Well, so
0: are you saying that you... uh, I'm I'm sorry if I've interrupted your train of thought. Are you saying that when you came to Nashville that you spent, you know, your first period of time in this town hesitating? A lot, yes, for sure, yeah. Well, you know, I I relate to that, you know, completely because, you know, that's exactly what I did. You know, I, I didn't want to come here thinking... I'm going to force Nashville to behave in the way that I've been accustomed to, Mm -hmm. you know, back in KC. Yeah. You know, what I want to do is learn how they do it here. Sure. So what I did was I was working for a little publishing company, and I spent the first eight years learning Pro Tools and working studio stuff, which is great because I acquired some marketable skills, or at least, if nothing else, tools to to create with. Mm -hmm. But I did not go out. I didn't want to start over again i didn't want to do all those things that it's i had painful. to do to be noticed you know in kansas city as a as a marketable you know product mm-hmm. so i i stayed and there weren't any jam sessions there there was one but what you know there wasn't really a way to go out and network with other musicians so the first 8 years man i pretty much spent in a basement doing pro tools and it was a huge mistake you know i should have i should have been actively you know, seeking, seeking out ways of, you know, interfacing with what was going on at
2: that mm-hmm. time.
1: So, yeah. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would, about six months in is when I went to Kara's the first time. That was the first jam I went to. First time I got on stage in Nashville was with Kara.
0: Oh, so you're, you're newer in town than
1: I I realized. Yeah. When well, did you get here? Uh, three years ago. Oh, okay. So I've Gosh, been Gosh, has Kara's jam been going that long? I it was probably two and a half years ago. I think I came to that jam not long after it started. From what I gathered. Okay. Cool. So I don't know when it exactly started, but well, I heard good, she good also. Good timing because yeah.
0: you couldn't have you couldn't hit a better spot to to, to interface with and uh, yeah you're you're just saying that uh, you you met your current roommate there at the jam yeah you know?
1: for sure yeah and uh,
0: I don't I, know how folks get stuff started in a musical town. If well, it's it's hard for it to be a musical town if there aren't jam sessions. Yeah,
1: it's, I didn't know where to look for the for the first six months I was here. I just was like, uh, okay, well I'm in Nashville. What do now I do? What? Yeah, yeah, now what? And I was just. And the
0: answer is go to as many jams as you can, yes. meet as many people as you can. Yeah. Just make friends, mm-hmm. join a clique, and start one. You know? Yeah. Exactly. That's what they told me. Mm-hmm. You know? And like when I they also told me it was a five year town. I feel. I feel cheated.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, when people talk about that...
0: I should have been a star by now, okay? Yeah,
1: exactly. It's just like, I i really don't <laughs> buy into, because there, I, I hear that it's a five-year town. I hear that it's a two-year town. I hear that it's a 10-year town. I hear that it's a 20-year town. I hear it's a 12-year town. Everybody wants to talk about what they think Nashville is and how long it takes to be successful, and they don't stop to smell the roses of the fact that we get to be musicians. Like, we get to be musicians, and we get to be in this musical city with all of this creativity just outpouring all the time.
0: Well, bingo, right there. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a creative environment. There's, like, there's like gigs on every street corner. Every yeah. neighborhood has has a different musical quality to it. You go downtown. Yes! It's a honky talks. So you go to East Nashville, and it's the hipsters, you know, banging sure. away in a garage. You know, mm-hmm. you go you go out to uh, different parts of town, and different things are going on behind closed doors and in the in the clubs. Yeah. So, you know, uh, somebody somebody ought to, you know, put out a publication on on just that part alone. You know? Yeah. But uh, it would be good if we could get those wagons in a circle, you know, and uh, get the communication happening between those yes. different circles. And there have been attempts. Mm-hmm. You know, I was involved with some people who would, with uh, every uh, great, you know, uh, uh, thought and uh, emotion in their hearts to, to bring people together. You know, created a uh, blues society, and it, for a period of time, it really worked really well. You mm-hmm. know, I was in the middle of it, and uh, you know, I benefited from uh, just meeting like everybody that was doing that, you know, like-minded stuff, you know. But there was also always people that, whenever, whenever you start any kind of, like, uh, um, any kind of situation like that, that attempts to do that, there's always people that think that it's better to not participate, you know, Mm -hmm. that that it's better to stand outside and sometimes, sometimes throw rocks, but sometimes just kind of, kind of go, well, that's not, that's not relevant. That won't, you know, that won't assist me, you know, I, yeah. I know Kara is in, in the process of starting to think called the Blues Alliance. Yeah, now that's being started with people that have every intention, and I believe they're going to do some some, some really good stuff with this. Uh,
1: I believe in Kara and whatever she wants to do. Yeah. because she well, believes in people.
0: Yeah, her her intent is is to is first of all to bring folks together. Yes, that, that have this like mind about about music, and it starts with the blues, but it also expands. You know, way outside of that too. It mm-hmm. just it expands into just music in general, and uh, so I'm curious to see what what'll happen this year with with the Blues Alliance. I am too. I haven't had a chance to go to a meeting yet. I've been on the road. Yeah,
1: yeah. But, I have. Uh, um, I had this this friend. His name was it was Richard. He was a groundskeeper at one of the uh, one of the properties I used to work at. And he was here, you know, playing drums on Broadway. He was friends with Merle and Waylon and all those guys. And he would talk to me about Nashville, and he said that Nashville is like a beehive. And all of the separate scenes are like their own little honeycombs. And there's not much cross-pollination happening. I, I wish that, that yeah, there that's, was more. That's,
0: that's the part that, you know, is like, you know, yeah, I, I'm with you. It's, it's, it's. I don't know if it's bad or good, but I, I personally just, you know, I think it would be wholesome if there were cross pollination. I come from a very musical community in Kansas City, and the talent pool there is world class. You know, the only reason I left was that it's hard to break out of Kansas City. It's not directly plugged into whatever the next big thing is. You know, but mm-hmm. uh, but it's a it's 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 superb as a, as a music town. And uh, I noticed it in when I was coming up there. There's a lot of different you know circles. There's the rock and roll stuff, and there's the blues stuff, and there's tons of jazz guys. It's a very jazz and blues oriented town. Uh, there's s- symphony people, there's show people, there's all you know all those different, but they all overlap in mm-hmm. different places. You know, for for musicians that play an instrument, they overlapped you know strongly at the jams. You know, and we don't necessarily see a whole lot of that happening, other than the jams.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I. I Carri's jam, for
0: example. Just, I mean, just to be clear, mm-hmm. you know, the the people that come down there aren't necessarily, you know, from the Delta, and it's like, it's like we just played the blues down here. Mm-hmm. It's it's not it's not really purist. It's folks that that love the blues as a language that you communicate with yes. other musicians. Without having to just cough up a hairball uh, that you learned for 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 the gig, yeah, totally. You know what I mean, it's just like, well, What song do you want to play? Well, I don't know. At a blues jam, you don't have to. You can meet somebody, for the first time. You mm-hmm. just kind of go, "What tempo do you feel like playing?" Yeah, you know? and what kind of group you want to do a shuffle? You want to do something funky, or you want to do a slow one? Uh-huh. You know, and then. One, what subject do you want to talk about? It's like you want. Do we want to discuss my broken heart? Do we want to discuss yo ugly face? <laughs> do we want to talk about my current jobless situation? Yeah, you know, pick one. Usually, it only takes about thirty seconds to pick one. Totally. And next thing you know,
1: you're off. You're yeah. Playing. Next
0: thing you know, it could, if if, if the cats are listening, mm-hmm. you know, it could sound like a band. And it always, uh, it always amazes people that are not musicians when they uh, attend a jam session. They go, mm-hmm. I don't know how y'all do that. You know. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, as you know, there's, there's sort of like foundational ground rules that everybody sure. kind of knows yeah yeah
1: not everybody always abides well, by no, them. I shouldn't especially say rules. if they're a lead guitarist
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh let's talk about can we talk about guitarists
1: <laughs>
0: bless their hearts
1: yes bless their hearts um kidding kidding as a, For you
0: people out there we're kidding
1: as a final thought what was it was there ever a gig that you didn't show up prepared for, that you just completely lost your shirt on, that you embarrassed yourself at? Are you, are you willing to share a story like that? <laughs> Let me think. Uh, there must be, t- nothing really comes to mind just offhand.
0: There must be, because n- I'm at the point in my life now where, where the, doing something like that is, is unthinkable, you know? Yes. I like to be prepared, I like to, unless I, unless i say there can be a, like a jam gig or something where, uh-huh. where where the whole idea is to show up and you invent. Yeah, but if if it's a if it's like a an artist gig with a repertoire or original tunes that are not jammable, uh, I want to be really well yeah. prepared. I want to have charts. I want to know what's totally. going on and uh, and the I guess the reason why I want to do that must have been because. You know, for the times that I've had in the past where I didn't know what was going on. And, I'm, you know, I'm not coming up with a great, you know, humiliating story.
1: I got one, I can tell. Okay. So, I was playing with this, this group. It was called Taken to the Streets. It was at this music school in Maine, kind of like an extracurricular thing. Um, it was a private school. And we had a gig, uh, and we were we had always the teacher always wanted to do Midnight Train to Georgia, which is a very prominent bass part. Mm-hmm. And there were multiple times in rehearsal where I would stop and I would just eat shit on it. And this totally
0: not jammable. Too we might we, we might add uh, the, yes the song by Jim Weatherly is a very sophisticated tune. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're doing the Gladys Knight rendition, that, it's that's a the one we were doing. Very sophisticated arrangement. Yes.
1: It, and we got like. Maybe three or four bars in, I was bombing bass notes left and right, just like eating shit on them. And it was so obvious, he, he put, he covers the microphone, leans over to me, he stops the band and he says, I'm going to need you to get your shit together. And then he counted off and we restarted the song and then I nailed it.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. But.
1: Um, oh well, that's a song that has a there
0: happy was, there ending. Was,
1: there was redemption there, but there was plenty of times. Um, There's another time I've actually never told this story before. Okay, so there was this. Uh, there was this uh, talent show at at my old high school. It was like a community talent show that the Rotary Club was putting on. At this time, I was probably 21 or 22, maybe. And um, I had I had this song that I was gonna play. Like this, this, uh, this Johnny Cash style, old like Elvis Sun style song called "Jaded Heart and Sleazy" that I wrote, and I went to go play "Jaded Heart
0: and Sleazy." Yeah, that's what it's called. Oh, yeah, I, I like the title. Yeah,
1: and um, I played it, and I got like maybe a half verse in, and I just lost my shit. I wasn't feeling it. My voice didn't sound good that night. Whatever, whatever. One thousand reasons why you never do good. It was like all hitting me at once, and the audience started off clapping, and then. Like the claps just started fading.
0: Oh, it's like the reverse uh, of that I, single hand clap. Yes, and they I, kind of started at it as a crowd yes. and it reduced to,
1: and I crashed and burned and it was horrible and That's it was it American hard. Idol style. So there was three judges and they had to give you feedback and they didn't want to tell me that I sucked. I knew I sucked. I didn't. I was just willing to suck at this at this point in my life and I still am.
0: There's there's a great title for another song.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm willing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and. Yeah, it was just embarrassing and horrible. Because uh, there was this girl I that like came it. out to to see me play, uh, like I invited her out. And oh, I was she like, yeah, I'm, she I'm, slipped I'm, quietly at the door. Yeah, she did not talk did she to me. Really? Oh, yeah, it was horrible. Oh lord, Humiliating. Oh. Um, never heard from her again. But yeah, that's my story.
0: Well, I'll tell you, I, I I will share with you one you know one story about not knowing what's going on. That may there may be a little catharsis in this particular story. And it was the first time I ever jammed on a blues tune. Uh, I, as I told you, I had started out on the guitar, uh-huh. and I kind of transitioned it to the keyboard, mostly because there was a, uh, well, there's things that I wanted to sing that I, I couldn't play on the guitar. I was so pattern-oriented on the guitar, uh-huh. and I noticed that, you know, I I just switched to the keyboards uh, just because it, it, it suited, you know, it suited me for the time without getting into detail, so... So I'm playing with this band in Kansas City. It was like back in the 70s. I was brand new with it. And I had this Fender Road set up. And I didn't, you know, I'm just starting out. I don't really know what's going on. And uh, the band leader who had been been around and done it, you know, he'd been with a band that was, you know, almost made it, you know, back in the 50s, et cetera. You know, he invited up to the stage a uh, a singer named Karen Johnson, who was uh, who I called Eventually. You know, I learned to call hot lips because she was, she was a badass. She knew every noise on every Aretha Franklin record that had ever been made. Uh-huh. She was Italian, she was fiery, and she sang her her brains out. And still, one of the, one of the, one of the best female female vocalists I've ever heard in my life, really. So she came up, and uh, she was going to sing a song, and I'm going. Man, what are you doing, man? We're not—we never rehearsed. I'd, what? What? We're just gonna suddenly play a song that we don't know? What are you talking yeah, about? Okay, so I this did, is your I first was not, time doing. I wasn't this. familiar with the concept. Yeah, you know, I did. It, it was like the blues. You know, but I did not. You know, I did not like it. I was, I was hot. You know, mm-hmm. so Karen came up. She wound up doing a, 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 a rendition of. It's a great song. From a um, from a, an obscure artist called East St Louis Jimmy Odom, and uh, the the version that she she was doing was the great Bobby Bland interpretation. The arrangement was done by a great L A arranger by the name of Michael O'Mardian, and uh, the song was called "Going Down Slow." Uh huh. And it's a, it's a lovely arrangement. It's funky, and it's got it's got a lick that goes through it, you know. And mm-hmm. it's it's. Uh, it's, 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 it's great stuff, great American music, you know, and so, so we started playing, it, and I just started kind of like, you know, just doing the beach tuner routine on the, on the piano, and, and I was just, like I say, I was, I was angry, but and Karen sang it, she just sang her face off, and I started kind of getting into a pocket, you know, it started kind of making sense, you know, and by the, the end of the song, you know, and she by the time she left the stage, I like totally got it. You know, yeah, yeah. I kind of went, "Oh, really?" Yeah. You know, I started out not knowing what was going on, but uh-huh. but it turned into something, and now you know, I'm coming from the perspective now of having been involved in hosting jam sessions most of my adult life. Yeah, really, and it's it's because of that language thing where you can get together with people and just make this music. Mm-hmm. So you you plow on through and there it is that's there my story is. about not knowing you know well thank you for coming on today I greatly appreciate it my pleasure thank you for inviting me absolutely